I'll be in First John chapter five and verses fourteen through sixteen today. Um, I was drawn to this passage because I am drawn to passages where we have promises given in connection with certain prayer requests. Oh, anytime the Bible itself records a prayer of some believer uh, that is then a model for us, or anytime we are instructed to ask for particular requests, I take special note of those things. Uh, we have uh, all acknowledged at many times how difficult prayer is, and it's difficult enough without us making it worse by shooting in the dark um, or by groping for things uncertainly uh, that are doubtful. Um, none of us really wants to be spending the time we give in prayer, which there's so much of a battle getting to that point in the first place. Once we get there, we don't want to spend our time aimlessly, and we don't want to spend our time asking God for things he's not inclined to give. Um, I think it's uh, sort of axiomatic that that would be the case for all of us. So First uh, John 5, 14 through 16 is um, attractive for that reason, and it speaks of confidence in prayer and receiving the things that we ask, and so that should get our attention. Uh, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So in the first verse there, verse 14, it speaks of confidence, which we have before him, which is something that we should all want as we pray. And this is not a confidence that we drum up, you know, that's based on nothing or wishes or a hope so, but a, a solid confidence and expectation that we are asking for things we know God is inclined to give us if we ask them. Uh, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, that might um, get confusing there because many times we may pray uh, not my will, but your will be done. And we imitate Jesus in that way in his prayer at Gethsemane. But there's a little, sometimes a different nuance to the way we sometimes employ that phrase. Sometimes we employ it when we don't know what God's will really is. So we say, if it be your will, um, Lord, you know, do this or that, if it be your will. And that if is an acknowledgement that we don't know whether it is. And since we don't know, we, we lack the confidence that this verse is talking about. So I don't think that when it refers here to if we ask anything according to his will, that it is referring to that sort of uncertainty that we often experience. I, I think it's okay to say, Lord, if it be your will, for us to acknowledge that on some of our prayer request, our prayer request, perhaps a number of them, we're not sure if that's something he's inclined to give um, or not. But here, I think, is speaking of something very different. Um, we know that if he hears us, that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked from him. So there's there's no uncertainty here whatsoever. We know 
that we have the requests that we've asked of him. And then following that is an example, an immediate example of the a kind of prayer that we can and should pray with confidence. If anyone sees his brother, this is verse 16, committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So first of all, the word brother is used throughout 1 John specifically and narrowly to refer to Christians, not to fellow man. Um, in some instances in scripture, it can be used that way, but not in 1 John. It isn't. Brother has to do with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So we're talking about praying for Christians here in this passage, not unbelievers. Uh, but notice how broad the scope of territory is in which we can pray confidently for another Christian. If we see another brother um, or sister, it is implied, uh, who is committing a sin, and that's not an uncommon thing to see because we are still sinners. We have this sinful flesh within us that wars against the spirit. And we, unfortunately, we sin every day. Um, if we see a brother committing a sin that's not leading to death, that is, it's not the unforgivable sin, then any other sin we see him commit, we have good cause and basis to pray for him in that regard and have confidence that God will give life to him with respect to that. Um, my, you know, I'm very limited on time here and I, I can't get into a, a, uh, long, uh, discussion with respect to the unforgivable sin. That's a, a big subject and it's not, uh, something easily reduced to sound bites, but I don't think I can entirely avoid it either. Uh, narrowly consider the unforgivable sin as it, that comes up in Matthew 12 is, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, wherein the Pharisees saw him casting out demons, accused him of casting those demons out by an evil spirit, indeed the evil spirit, Satan. And of course, he was casting them out by the spirit of God. And so it was a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, specifically because it was the spirit's power by which he did it. And they were attributing that to the evil spirit. Uh, then broadly consider the the unforgivable sin seems to also include apostasy, where you see in Hebrews 6 that those who are enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and so forth and then fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, that makes uh, that may raise more questions than it answers, but essentially when the apostle here is speaking of uh, a sin that's leading to death, I don't say to make requests for this. He seems to clearly have in mind the unforgivable sin that Jesus spoke of. And yet any other sin except that one is something that we should be able to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters regarding that um, and have confidence that God will give life to them. So that raises another question. Uh, Christians already have life. What does it mean to give life to those who commit sin not leading to death? Well, I think it has to mean the life of sanctification or the life of victory over that particular sin in which they are caught. Um, that when we see a brother or sister uh, committing a sin, perhaps 
uh, gossip, but we are, we are convinced, we're persuaded that they are a believer, um, but we see them committing that sin. Or more to the point, we see brothers and sisters in our churches whom we believe genuinely know the Lord, but, but they don't seem to be terribly interested in prayer. They, they pray, but there's, uh, they, they languish in it. They don't attend the prayer meeting. Um, they have not made it a priority. That's something that has uh, burdened all of us. And what I think this passage is telling us is when you see brothers and sisters that are sinning, but not in a way of the unforgivable sin, not the sin that leading to death, he should ask God and God will give life uh, for that, that person, a sanctifying life of victory over that particular sin. So that this is a wonderful passage and a wonderful promise for us. We're not, of course, to be hypocritical and have a log in our own eye and just be completely preoccupied with the sins of our brothers and sisters. And yet, because we love them, we should indeed uh, be concerned about them and want to pray for our brothers and sisters. And part of that prayer for them includes those things in which they are stumbling. So we have a, a definitive promise here. And then with respect to revival, how does this fit in with revival? Well, when you think about asking God to give life to brothers and sisters, what is there uh, as far as a more powerful demonstration or gift of that life, that sanctifying sin conquering life but revival itself broadly across across the church um, we are we have been praying for revival and we we acknowledge frequently that judgment begins in the household of god and that we need to start at home first and that before we can be concerned about the broader culture around us we we need we can't leapfrog the concerns of the church to uh, be preoccupied with the sins of the culture and that uh, for the culture to see any kind of change and transformation and to see the kind of conversions that we might hope there to be in the world of lost people, there needs to be a reviving and quickening work of the spirit in the church first. And I think that in this passage, we have um, an, a fascinating and amazing promise there given to us and an encouragement and an inducement to pray for our brothers and sisters that God give them life. Um, just one short anecdote on that front. Uh, there was a, a woman that, that my wife and I knew that seemed to have a particular problem with the sin of grumbling. And um, we, on the basis of this verse, prayed for her that God would give life to her. And within a within a couple of weeks, saw a noticeable change in that very area of her life. And it has thus far seemingly been a, a lasting one. And uh, so let us go today as we pray with, with confidence, since that's what this verse is indicating we can have on the basis of asking God to give life uh, to our brothers and sisters, whether it be specific uh, concerns about specific brothers and sisters that you know, that you want to pray for. Um, you know, obviously we have to keep people's issues private and, and not rehearse their dirty laundry in front of everyone. I'm not suggesting that, but um, 
but also broadly speaking with respect to revival and praying that God give life to his church and, ha and having confidence in praying for that because uh, for us to press on, we need, we need confidence. Thank you.